the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Welcome again. This is our Chalcedon Q&A number nine. We start a little bit early just so that our technical team can uh, get this posted up on our website, chalcedon.edu, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N.edu. That way they can join us over there. So, two things before we actually start taking questions. One of them is uh, a little correction from a previous um, Q&A session where I mentioned the idea of spinsterism as a consequence of polygamy. Actually, that's a uh, consequence of polyandry. And that's a, 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 that's when you have multiple uh, husbands for one wife. And that's where you run out of uh, available husbands, if you will, and you have spinsters. When you have the polygamy situation, then you're taking potential wives out of the, uh, the pool, and you have a whole bunch of men who, according to 1 Corinthians 7, are burning. Uh, without recourse. So uh, the fact that God doesn't give us a two-to-one or three-to-one proportion of uh, women born to men, uh, virtually even, Stephen, is indicative that it's a one-for-one deal. And uh, and Solomon was taking a lot more than he had a right to when he had as many wives and concubines as he had. And uh, so you know that uh, that was the beginning of the end for Israel in many, many respects. Just technical adjustment here. The second thing is, I went to a, a rally of sorts just to observe, get a feel for what the issues were in downtown Austin yesterday, and it had to do with the question of mass incarceration. And a lot of folks had uh, things they wanted to say. There were various ministries, and call them the secular ministries, present. And they all observed the problems with the prison system. Uh, some of the injustices, uh, much of which are blatant. And uh, the thing that struck me is that instance after instance, we had appeals to non-Christian sources and uh, non-Christian virtues and groups. For example, one individual saw uh, redemption coming from Marx and Mao, among other places. And this theme struck me over and over again that the secularists were here dealing with this issue, but the church wasn't there, unless you consider my wife and I being present, anything like that. And in other words, the Christians were checked out on this issue. We were totally unengaged. Uh, And let's be clear, this is not to say that uh, we agree at all with the agenda as presented by the speakers. But the part of it that's correct is the Bible does not countenance the existence of prisons. There is rather only a very brief holding time uh, for adjudication, and then the resulting punishment would either be restitution, uh, capital punishment, things on this order, but not incarceration for long term. That is a non-existent, non-biblical, unbiblical, in fact anti-biblical punishment, and yet it's rife across the world. Uh, it's humanism substitution for what God requires. And in many cases, it's much more cruel than what God requires. You know, in the restitution case, uh, the victims are made whole again, and the perpetrator uh, is put back on his feet, having made things right, according to God. And we lack this when we don't have restitution. Uh, so this giant, giant prison system that we have in America it figures into the so-called wheel of death when I wrote the articles on Dr. Kishore's work with opium addiction treatments, uh, in one of the articles I did this giant uh, set of gears, interlocking gears, that show how each aspect of the um, drug industrial complex uh, feeds into the next one, you know, all the way through back to the media, <laughs> media industrial complex, back to the, uh, the main problem. And it's a circle. 
And one of the circles, of course, is the correctional industry, the prison industrial complex, where a lot of money is being made. And people are not willing to unmake that money or put aside the capital that's going to be had by what amounts to slave labor. Interestingly enough, when folks give us Marx and Mao as the solution path, and the Christians haven't given an alternative, or, or just avoided the topic altogether, uh, they're not very cognizant of the fact that when, say, Lenin was promising all this deliverance from these evils of the Tsar, uh, we were going to move from prisons to entire gulags, where slave labor camps were all de rigueur, the the main way that the regime uh, enforced things. Uh, you went from the frying pan into the fire, in effect. So where are the Christians dealing with this topic? Where are we going to come in and say, uh, we need to replace the, these systems with the biblical system, with biblical justice, and not humanistic justice, which is ultimately cruel? We don't, we don't have it. And so uh, this calls for at least some level of interaction. If you read through Dr. Rashtuni's writings on the question of imprisonment, you find out very fast that it is a cruel pagan practice. It is there's not a Christian element in it. Now I know folks will say, well, you know, Matthew 25 tells us tells us we're to visit those who are in prison. So obviously prisons are beat around, and this sounds good until you realize most people aren't even visiting folks in prison. It's a uh, it's a kiss off, really, in effect. It's a way to dismiss an argument, uh, saying, well, we our obligation is to visit, but you don't even meet that obligation. So maybe you start visiting regularly the prisons, find out what's going on in there. You might have uh, something, yeah, Roman prisons is right. John Andrew Reasoner points out that uh, really it's the Roman model that we're following. And uh, why on earth would we do that? Uh, because that's not what the Bible's model is, especially when the biblical punishments uh, are much better on society and ultimately for the uh, perpetrators too. Under restitution, you uh, earn back in effect and pay back uh, what you owe, at least up till seven years worth of labor. Uh, and that's a very different thing than the slave labor camp uh, of uh, in Russia or other countries where slave labor is big. And if you don't think that uh, that's of any form of slave labor, uh, think again. Now, one of the interesting things about this particular rally is their objections to the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And they believe, under an interpretation of it, and I can see where they get that idea, uh, that once you're imprisoned, you are functionally equivalent to a slave. You're enslaved, and therefore you should expect, expect slavery conditions in prison. And that this is therefore constitutional, since the amendment is, essentially acknowledges this in passing as the norm. So we have a lot of work to do if this is the case. You know, they want to repeal the 13th Amendment for all sorts of other reasons. And we're not going to get into discussion today about which particular crimes warrant uh, punishment and which ones do not. That's not the point. The point is whatever is a legitimately, uh, a biblically legitimate pr crime, prison is not the solution to it, is not the proper punishment. In fact, uh, it goes the 90 degrees, 180 degrees opposite of what the scripture requires, which will either be restitution or capital punishment. And that's the reality of it. So we need to get uh, cracking on this because the situation is going to worsen. It's not going to get better. Same thing with the opiate crisis right now. Uh, we are very prayerful about the prospects for the film uh, that we're doing on Dr. Kishore in collaboration with uh, Great Commission Films and Joaquin Fernandez's group. Uh, it certainly should expose a much better solution to the opioid crisis than is being bandied about. The current administration is talking about $45 billion to throw at the opioid addiction problem. Some of it for interdiction, but a lot of it for very, very bad and very ineffective solutions. Whereas a workable solution was destroyed in the state of Massachusetts. Those who've read the articles know what I'm talking about. So this prison issue is really one of the cogs in the exact same wheel that the opioid addiction industry is part of too. It's all of a piece. Uh, that's because culturally we need to be involved looking at every aspect of what uh, original sin has contaminated, what our rebellion against God and his law has brought upon us. Because when you throw out God's law, you think you're getting something better. Oh, we're going to get rid of this terrible law of God and put in something more humane. And the reality is there's not, nothing humane about it, nor does it resolve society's problems. It actually worsens them because it's not God's way. The creators are, are valid uh, source for all these things. 
So there has to be a rethinking from the ground up. Now these folks at this rally were talking, of course, uh, revolution in many respects. Some of it was peaceable, some of it perhaps not so, especially if you're going to be citing Mao, who tells you that you know politics is decided out of the muzzle of a gun, things on this order. So what's our calling then? Do we, we talk about, again, regeneration and not revolution? There's a phrase I use in my science fiction novel that comes to... Uh, comes to bear on this, and I'll get to Priscilla's question here in a moment. <laughs> yeah, they, they simply, one of the signs at that uh, rally simply said, free them all. Let's talk about that free them all thing first for the moment. This is something that President Frederick Chiluba of Zambia, uh, when Zambia became a quote-unquote Christian nation, however briefly that was, certainly was with ostentation and uh, uh, fanfare, you know, a man holds the Bible over his head at the UN and says, Zambia is a Christian nation, uh, several decades back. And he thought to himself, you know, there's a lot of people in prison, and I bet you they're all political prisoners. So what did they do? He released them all. They freed them all. And he unleashed rapists and murderers and thieves, cutthroats, into society. And, of course, the crime wave shot up as a result because they weren't dealing with it biblically uh, either. They, if they only released the political prisoners and then dealt biblically with the legitimate prisoners uh, to do what God required, they would have had something. But it was a one-size-fit-all solution, and it was a revolution, and it was inflicted great evil on Zambia in the name of Christ. Let's free them all. So it's a matter of not so much free them all, but have justice for each individual case treated individually. That's what is lacking. That's what we didn't have. So, going back to the novel that I wrote, there's a, um, a one of the generals is making a comment, you know, slight coarse language here, I apologize for that, uh, where he's objecting that this development, scientific development, is uh, going to become known, and it has uh, religious implications. And he says this, he says, Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door and set half of Europe on fire. Now I'll be damned if I'm going to let this woman nail up a 96th one. So what's this 96th thesis? The problem is whenever you nail up a thesis as it is, the question is, are you going to be able to control the result of it or are you going to have riots on your hands? When Luther says, you know, these images in these churches are not biblical, it was a solution for everyone to uh, grab their torches and run through the churches with hammers and smash and destroy and, and become iconoclasts, as it were, is a riotous revolutionary act the proper result. So you want to have the underpinnings in your approach, the foundations prepared to handle the consequences of the release of the truth. The truth will free you, but it can also re-enslave you if it's a partial truth, right? It's not just that those things were bad, but there was a proper way to get out of those uh, ensnaring situations. See. That's true for public tax you know, taxation. There's a right way to get out of these problems, but they are not easy way outs. They're tough ways out, but it is a legitimate way out. You can get rid out of the public education nightmare um, by educating your children either in a Christian school or homeschooling them. Nonetheless, uh, you're going to still pay taxes for the public school system so long as that system's there, so you pay twice. But that's what's required at the moment until you can overcome the other system by building the alternative big enough so it saps and destroys the public school system simply because of the exodus out of it. And that's why they, I think they chose that word exodus mandate for that one uh, group that E. Ray Moore put together, uh, which we certainly favor. So, all this to say, uh, when we nail up that next thesis, revolution is not the solution. And as Mark Rushton, you mentioned in the sermon that you just concluded, then we're looking to Jesus to get... Uh, external solutions to their problems. And he came, rather, to solve man, to fix man. Not fix man's problems, but to fix man, who's the source of the problem. And uh, they were looking for the external quick fixes and not the deep root solution that Christ went to. He was going to the root of the matter, the heart of man. And he knew what was in the heart of man, and therefore he wouldn't accept the accolades of the crowds. He withdrew from them. So going back to prison, here's a whole area where the Bible speaks volumes uh, in terms of what proper justice is and where the Christians opposing this system are putting forward an alternative. Uh, we are out to lunch here again. And the pain culturally that is the result, I mean, there's a tremendous um, 
impact, negative impact, a, a huge burden placed on our society uh, when these people are in and when they come back out. Uh, it's just it's an evil system from start to finish. In the in the name of good, <laughs> evil is perpetrated. Uh, and just as the Lord says to us that no lie is of the truth, no good comes from evil. You know, does any pure water come forth from a polluted stream? James asks. Absolutely not. So no good can come from a biblical system. God can overrule certain things providentially, but that doesn't mean we count on that and say we can do all the evil we want because God's that sin that grace may abound. God forbid. And so the same thing with this massive system. It's only going to grow bigger if the children, if the Christians don't interact. Here in Austin, a couple of years back, three or four years back, there was a conference being held uh, on war, preventive war, a preemptive war, I should say, uh, among other topics. And there were no Christian speakers. There was no one brought a Bible there to speak God's words of truth uh, to the matter. Uh, so I went. And yes, uh, strange bedfellows, but really because I was there not because I agreed with their agendas, which were humanistic, but rather that there was one point in common and that we could, for that time, pull in the same direction, but for completely different reasons. Uh, me, because biblical justice specifies God's laws for, for, for war, and I was there to represent, represent the king and his prerogatives on this matter. I went through an exposition of lamentations and why that book was even written, and it was because of preemptive war. Any event. All that to say, if Christians keep checking out, we're going to have, we'll soon be checking out the church itself because it's going to be a pattern, a mindful pattern. Andrea Schwartz writes, There is a temptation to want to reform an ungodly system. Do we just have to be patient as we disseminate our perspective? Well, that's an interesting point. Dissemination is one thing, but what can be actively done to correct the problem? Sometimes you can take certain self-government upon yourself. We mentioned just earlier the question, for those who excuse prisons on the ground that our only obligation is to visit them, are you visiting them? And once you do, you might open your heart to say, some of these people don't belong here, and a lot of these folks would have been better off uh, doing restitution and getting their lives back on track versus being hardened in this environment uh, because the Bible doesn't consider prison a valid form of punishment. You will not find it in the 613 commands of God. It's simply absent because God uh, has not ordered it. It is a, a pagan system, like John Andrew Reasoner said, Roman prisons. And so we don't follow the biblical model uh, because we're not interested in restitution, and we're not interested in restitution for a whole host of reasons. Let's also say this. If Christians aren't interested in restitution, we are not going to be interested in doing anything about our culture because that's foundational to everything. In Acts 3.21, we read, Peter speaking, about Christ ascended to the heavens. He says, the heavens must contain him until the time of the restitution of all things. That Greek word means until the time that all things have been restituted, until restitution is complete. All restitution has been made across the globe. He remains in the heavens. The heavens must contain him until restitution is flowed. And so we have a re-obligation. Okay, we have another question here. What is the origin of the prosperity gospel? Well, I think the prosperity gospel is predominantly is a uh, small fraction of the truth. Uh, and as Warfield said, what is the flaw in this argument? Only this, that it seeks to ground its uh, argument in a single premise severed from its companion premises, which is to say they pick one thing, that cherry-picking phenomenon we talked about last week, and expand on that at the exclusion of all other scriptures to the contrary that would give a balanced viewpoint of what the Christian walk is all about. Uh, consequently, they, and it bothers us a little bit personally, it gets under our skin, because all of a sudden you see uh, quotations from things that Christian Reconstructionists talk about and saying, holy smokes, they're quoting from some of the stuff that we would quote, except it's being railroaded into the service of the prosperity gospel. Uh, if that's so what the problem is again that it, it is a incomplete thing and here's the other point is that being incomplete we don't get the whole law of God in respect to it people are expected to become prosperous when in fact across the board they're violating scripture uh, top to bottom you know all these folks are think it's perfectly fine to have 
30-year mortgages, for example, and all sorts of things, and not pay the poor tithe, and they expect God to bless massive disobedience on their part. So uh, God, even if the prosperity gospel had a scrap of truth to it, none of these folks are eligible to be prospered by God merely by saying it, because uh, God, the blessings come for obedience. If, if, if there's anything that the scripture says, it's because uh, you delight in the law of the Lord and you, and you meditate on it day and night. And those are the men that are blessed, and they shall prosper. The wicked shall not prosper, ultimately, but uh, there's a prosperity promised to the wicked, I mean, to the, to the, to the righteous, and uh, that prosperity is grounded in the law of God. It is not a lawless prosperity, uh, but a lawful one, and it's where the blessings of God's law are allowed to unfold naturally. There can be exceptions uh, in a fallen world, but ultimately that's where everything's headed. If you look at the descriptions in uh, Isaiah 65 or the 11th chapter of Isaiah, everything looks very prosperous. Everyone under their own vine and fig tree. There is no more profound image of prosperity. Uh, it's because uh, when God gives a gift, he adds no trouble to it, as the Proverbs say. The gifts of God don't have doesn't add a problem to his blessings when he blesses us. The blessings that men give always have problems attached to them. Uh, they are mixed bags, as it were. And God's blessings come because we turn to him first. Uh, he blesses us with salvation, and in turn, we have an obligation that God's written the law in our heart and our minds. And therefore, we are to walk according to that light, and not in darkness, or be agents of darkness. So that it arose, I think, because of the itching ears phenomenon. People want to be rich. People, and this is obvious just by seeing all those folks that are lined up to buy lotto tickets. Uh, they want to, to prosper. But it is a prosperity that comes without work. See, they're not mindful of what Scripture says, that riches gained quickly are just so it's easily lost. They are a blessing that brings trouble with it. And the amount of folks that have won the lotto big and are spending this today, these are horror stories. All these folks are counseled to get all this kind of uh, financial advice, of where to put your stuff in a system that is biblically corrupt. <laughs> and still they're going to lose everything anyway um, with the kind of instruments that they're being told to put their money into. Unless it's land, I suppose, or gold. So the upshot is, you know, prosperity gospel is in essence a distortion of the Christian Reconstruction position because it represents a small piece of the whole that's out of context and out of balance. Um, the appeal of it is everyone wants to be um, have a Cadillac. At least that was the uh, the going craze in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, and the funny joke is, you know, <clears throat> folks say the story of Noah promotes the prosperity gospel because the message of Noah was God wants you to have a yacht, <laughs> your ark-sized yacht. So I'm not convinced that that's a compelling argument in the slightest. But the prosperity gospel is here, and until Christians mature, and I'm going to be speaking on this topic in Australia uh, next week, until we mature, as outlined in Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3, uh, we're going to be, again, sucking on the milk bottle, and we're going to be uh, subject to these distortions like the prosperity gospel. You know, in, and, of course, it makes God to be very, very benevolent-looking if he's trying to bless you, and the problem is you have lack of faith. See, that always allows that preacher to put it back on you. Uh, but not for law-breaking, but simply for not following the ABC formula to get rich, according to the prosperity gospel, uh, or to have the gifts of God. So, I think the prosperity gospel does prosper the preachers who teach it. And this brings us back to a verse we've talked about a lot in these Q&As, Hosea 4.8. So, but the leaders have said, they eat up the sins of my people. In other words, the teachers are benefiting from the lawlessness, the disobedience of the people, and they don't intend to correct it. They're going to continue making money off it. And there we have it. That's all I have to say about that for the moment. Charles Roberts writes, Martin, please say a few more words about the importance of the publication of an informed faith. Thank you for uh, bringing that back. We talked about it last week. And uh, what these are are the position papers of R.J. Rushdoony. They're the complete position papers of R.J. Rushdoony. Uh, so unlike the book Roots of Reconstruction, which only took us up 
1965 to about 89-ish. Uh, they're the complete set, an extra decade or so of writings of Dr. Rashtuni. Uh, some missed ones are in that had never been published. I think six, if memory serves. Kyle Andrew Shepard could correct me on that number since he was involved in the production of this project. And more to the point, this volume is massively indexed, subject indices, scripture indices, author indices. Uh, it is a profound tool this three-volume set. It's set off topically, so they're not in the order that Dr. Rashtuni wrote them. So they're not one, two, three, four, five. They're going to be all over the map, topically arranged, so that everything under a certain um, heading can be found in one place. And so if you're interested in, say, ecclesiology, you can read all the position papers on the church that Dr. Rashtuni wrote from beginning to end in one place. You can find references in the indices, which are in the third volume, that comprise a good chunk of the final third volume because they're so massive. It's a tremendous research tool. And as I said last week, the value of these position papers is this, that each one claims territory for Christ's kingdom. It says this is the Christian approach to this. This is what the Bible says about topic A. And here's topic B over here. And he lays out point by point, contrasts the humanistic view and the church missteps, also a big thing, where the church went astray from scripture. Uh, for various reasons, and what the Bible teaches. And so he was taking ground for Christ and setting an example for us to follow. And as I said, man, I mentioned last week, it's this. Our obligation of reading it is either to say, I like what he had to say about topic X, I want to build on that, and I want to extend it. Or, conversely, there's an area between topic X and Z that he didn't cover, which is area Y. We need a position paper on that. Maybe I should be the one to write it because I have a heart for this topic. I want to dig in and drive an, a tent stake in here and widen and this whole point imagery in Isaiah 54. Widen you know, the tent stakes, spare not, strengthen, lengthen the cords, create, uh, generate more territory for God to rule over um, consciously, conscious rule. See, there's a such thing as the area that God uh, unconsciously were, um, glorifies God. The cow in the field glorifies God unconsciously. The stones in the mountains, they give God glory. The heavens in the uh, firmament declare his handiwork. The words go forth. And the lion goes through the world, according to Psalm 19. But men are called upon to glorify God consciously. We can deliver a, a sacrifice of praise to him, if you will, in our vocations and in our work. So here's territory where you're either going to build on what he laid out a great foundation for or potentially improve his foundation, saying there's a misstep here in Rashtun and we can fix it. We can make it better. We can make it more solid than he had benefit of doing. So you can improve his foundation, you can build on his foundation, or you can extend where he uh, didn't build, where he probably was not a weak. Everyone has weaknesses. No one has strengths across the board except the Lord Christ. So that's the nature of the case. So get these books. If you're going to have anything besides the Institute's Volume 1 and a couple of other volumes, an informed faith is the one to have. I don't believe there's any more copies of the Ritz of Reconstruction around, and it's a difficult book to navigate because they're all in sequence, and it's very, very difficult to find things in Ritz of Reconstruction, apart from the fact that it's 1,194 pages long. So you can have everything in it, plus much more, all organized is a research tool for the serious Christian, and hence an informed faith, right? And a faith that is informed by a scriptural uh, application across the board, from theory all the way to practice and everything in between. Dr. Rashtuni puts that transmission belt, if you will, into place. Dr. Gary North uses that term. What good is it if you have an engine running if the wheels don't turn? You need to have a transmission that takes the theory and applies it to the rubber on the ground that causes the car to move forward to culture and impact the, the world. Yeah, the other point is being made. It Roots is out of print, which is unfortunate, but it's a blessing in disguise because an informed faith is a much better version of the same material and, and vastly easier to use and a much more compelling tool to have in your toolkit than Roots. Roots was published as a consequence <laughs> of uh, someone indicating that, hey, you didn't copyright all this stuff. I'll go ahead and publish this if you don't. And so Chalcedon very quickly assembled everything in a massive rush to basically push this book into print. 
uh, and a large amount were published, which allowed us to sell it very inexpensively for its massive size with Kaibar cover and everything. But it also meant there was no space or time for the index. It's not the first time we've had you know, issues with a book, but this was interesting. It was a book that we were forced to put to print, let someone else do it for us, uh, and that wouldn't have been right in our view. So the other person can take credit for pushing us. Uh, God uses whatever he wants. All right. Uh, after using roots for all these years and wishing it was indexed, this is an answer to prayer, and that is a comment by Charles Roberts. I, I would say so. I've just myself. Uh, I'm so used to using roots by Hunt and Peck. Uh, I, I have to grow out of that habit with an informed faith. Uh, at least I know which uh, of the three volumes to pick up when I'm interested in something. Now, I know don't pick up volume one if you're interested in say ecclesiology. <laughs> you're not gonna. That's not the one to go for. So there's another comment. Let me scroll back up. Uh, yeah, Shelby uh, Larray Shepard gets the credit for the supervising the indices. And it was a massive project because occasionally we would get uh, technical questions uh, from the indexing person. Uh, where should we put this? And oftentimes my answer would be put it in both places. Why not be complete? Why not make this uh, tool as powerful as, as we can uh, versus restricting or narrowing it? So that's the kind of the approach we took. Make it as valuable to the user as possible. Because Rush Dooney is not the easiest authors to navigate, but to make it easy, at least if you can put it where it needs to be so people know what they're looking for, uh, it makes the job three times easier for the reader. All right, and the three volumes are very well bound. There's real card covers, and they're not cardboard, and that is true, too. We, uh, uh, we thought that this was an important work, and we didn't want to do it in a way that was, was in some way shabby. That said, we're still there. Still was a minor printing issue with it. The margins are not quite where they ought to have been, and it's interesting to me how many times a major work of uh, Chalcedon's has seemed to have suffered from printers' devils. Uh, the systematic theology from 1994 suffered from a problem that was uh, so severe, and with the amount of errata that was required, Dr. Rushdoney wondered how on earth did, did did this thing get messed up when it looked right when it left uh, here. Another case in point, a very important book, was Great Christian Revolution. And this book, I went through the trouble of uh, editing uh, and finding all the typos, particularly in Dr. Otto Scott's section on history. And then I indexed the entire thing. Now you'll say, well, Martin, there's no index in the Great Christian Revolution, and there's plenty of typos in Otto Scott's section. And you'd be right, because we submitted all that stuff, and none of those things were applied, and the index was never printed. I made the work, but boof. So the printer's devils, they try to get us when they can, and uh, we roll with the punches. And when it's time to reprint, those corrections can be placed and those indices made for that one. So, some interesting background. Rush did prepare an index, but it never got to the printer back before digital transmission. Yeah, there's some truth in that too. Uh, Justin Ryan says, stance on pedo-communion, question mark. Does Chalcedon have a stance? Well, the reality is that Chalcedon is not a monolithic uh, structure, is it? It's um, not so much three men and a dog, as I like to joke. But everyone has different uh, convictions and different notions of where the church is going to be headed in the future. Uh, this, to me, is an interesting thing because, say... Uh, someone is a, an elder in the PCA, so officially they're going to have to say, speaking as a PCA elder, my position is X. But personally, they might have a different idea. They might say, yeah, my belief is in a couple of hundred years, uh, we will go to the opposite of X. X will no longer be held, and the PCA will make this transition. Uh, that's going to be interesting to see how that, that plays out. Uh, we know that Dr. Rashtuni was pro-pedo-communion. Uh, in effect, he saw as much continuity between circumcision and baptism as he saw between the Lord's Supper and communion, and consequently, he saw that there was a uh, that, continu that con continuity was important. And there are alternate expositions to the section of First Corinthians 11 concerning examining yourself that appear to um, make it not such a slam dunk against paedo communion as a lot of folks might think. Nonetheless, the, the story is this, is that we all coexist or exist in different church settings where 
the uh, obligations are, are going to be officially one thing and perhaps not officially something else. So the Chalcedon's founder promoted Pedro Communion uh, insofar as the, the issue came up. That put him at uh, odds with lots of other individuals, and they would simply strike this up to another uh, Rashtuni excess. But it would be interesting to see what happens two or three hundred years down the line, where the Rashtuni is seen as dead wrong the entire time or way ahead of his time. These things don't uh, resolve themselves quickly, as it turns out. So we shall, we shall have to wait and see. So his stance today might be very premature. Uh, the, you know, it doesn't matter how good your exegesis is of various passages, because there's confessionalism now at play. Now we have another uh, person on the playing field other than Rob who looks at Jesus, and that is, you know, how confessional are you? How strong a scripture are you? And so these things now are in play too, and they complicate the picture. Now their intent is to simplify and purify the picture and make it more biblical. But that presupposes that the confession is correct on every, across the board. As good as it is, and Dr. Rashtuni had plenty of praise for the major Protestant uh, creeds from the 17th century, he didn't see them as infallible, and that presents where the rub is. So, all that to say, Chalcedon's founder, pro communion, uh, individuals of Chalcedon may have different views, and it's going to take several centuries to sort it out. It is, I think, the height of presumption to say that issue has been resolved once for all. It's not going to be, eschatology isn't, and I don't think that's going to be resolved either, and certainly not by appeal to confessions or creeds, because it has to be resolved scripturally. And, and, and that's where a lot of, fortunately, some of those arguments are taking place based on scripture, uh, which is a good thing, for, for pro and con, this issue. We need to see more of that um, in a good charitable spirit, not heretic, heretic. Uh, back and forth. Uh, that's not going to be productive at all, and nor will we reach the truth, we'll simply reach division. Okay, let's see where we are. Are there any works on the millennium and the effects on alcoholism? That's interesting. Are there any works, uh, maybe there's two different topics you're interested in there, Rory. Are there any works on the millennium and the effects of alcoholism or, or on alcoholism? Okay, <laughs> what is the effect of the millennium on alcoholism? That, I don't know if there's such a work. I'm not in my library, just glancing at it, and I have a pretty complete eschatology section here. So, one possibility is perhaps when there's an apocalyptic mindset uh, and escapism is all the, the rage, then what better escapism than drugs and alcohol? I mean, they've been around forever. Alcohol is an escape. There's even a section of Proverbs that talks about how valuable it is as a mode of escape, a, an anesthetic to numb you from the pains of life, whatever those might be. It's put there more as a practical concession and acknowledgement than a recommendation, it should be pointed out. But nonetheless, it, it's there. So one wonders if, uh, in fact, uh, escapism as a general theological construct uh, has implications elsewhere in your life, where now you want to escape other things. Excessive sleep is also a, uh, an escape uh, mechanism. So just setting aside the question of, of alcohol and its abuse. I imagine you referred to uh, its abuse. Uh, so if there's more to be asked on that, or you can clarify the question, that's as far as I think I can take it on a, on a quick sketch. All right, and there was a... Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. As far as works on the, on the millennium itself, uh, I'll just put my, my I take follow Warfield's view that the millennium is not in a period of time on earth at all. Rather, it's a chronological symbol that uh, is John's way of describing the intermediate state of the souls in heaven. And so basically, if you're dead today, you're in, and a Christian, you're in the millennium. That's where you're at uh, and at such time as you pass. Otherwise, you're in the little season of Satan. 
And when you have a time symbol, which is the duration of time, the way you indicate outside that time symbol is before and after. That's outside the 1,000 years is before and after. So it's not the chronological succession that's in view. Uh, it's rather a state of being, ex exteriority, as Warfield says. And this comes from expositions prior to Warfield in the 19th century from uh, William Milligan, uh, Cleefoth, his Christophe Eschatology, these uh, early works, also Deusterdijk. Uh, these scholars took a hard look at the cross-references inside the book of Revelation, particularly this little season, saying, wait a minute, this little season of Satan is mentioned also in 6.11 and also in 12.12. This is not new. It's the third time this thing's being discussed. And so they followed the cues inside the book of Revelation to arrive at their understanding that these are disembodied souls. And we talked about it before. I saw the souls of them uh, that were... Uh, Sacrifice that uh, were uh, beheaded for the sake of Christ. These are disembodied souls, not human beings that are living on the earth today. So uh, I take a very different attack on what the millennium is. If the millennium was an earthly period of time, then we have this massive problem as to what it means when the uh, millennium ends. You're saying that uh, Satan now being released, the gospel goes on hard times. In other words, the success of the gospel is based on a, something in the created realm, Satan. Satan determines soteriology, determines salvation. It's not God. It's not God's election that determines who's saved. It's Satan. Well, that's what Arminianism is. Arminianism is the determining factor is in the created order and not in the creator. And so the second we adopt that view of the millennium, we have a massive problem, which is we've now said salvation depends on things in the creative order, ultimately. That's where everything ultimately hinges because the gospel won't work when Satan's released again. Yeah, Satan, he's greater than the gospel. It doesn't matter what Romans 1.16 says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It matters that Satan's released. So in Warfield's view, which I believe is the correct one, and, Warf and uh, Dr. Restrini came to readopt it in the 90s, uh, he says, look, Satan is unleashed here on earth, and still... Jesus converts the entire world to the last man standing. That is victory. That's when the, there's no excuse. Satan can't say, well, you tied me up and chained me up, and that's no wonder you converted the world. No. Christ converts the world despite Satan being unleashed. Whereas the other view of the millennium is, well, it's, Satan's tied up, but Jesus can't convert the whole world. It's just not possible. Uh, Gary North puts it this way. You know, just like a sane woman can't clean the entire uh, house with her broom, so too Jesus can't clean up the entire uh, threshing floor of the world with his uh, winnowing fan. I object to that analysis of his, which he puts out there in books like Dominion and Common Grace. I think this is a, a major error that's popped in to the post-millennial picture, and it's because post-millennialism as a theory uh, has lost sight of its original roots in the late 19th century. We've abandoned Warfield we talk about Warfield, but we abandon his actual position. So that's name-dropping without actually doctrine, uh, doctrinal attention to what he had to say. And this is, is not helpful in our, my view, because there's a whole school of thought behind his approach to the book of Revelation that corrects a lot of ideas. And uh, that's why he didn't look to Revelation for the victory of Christ per se, certainly not in Revelation 20. He saw it in Romans 11 and 1 Corinthians 15 and countless other passages that he brings to the table but not Revelation 20. He says that's got nothing to do with the state of the church, except that during the period of the little season, fire comes down from heaven. And as, as I mentioned, he says we're living in the little season now. Fire is coming down from heaven and destroying all the enemies of God generation by generation. It's that same stream of fire that comes out from the throne of heaven in Daniel 7 onto the earth. And it represents what Romans 1.18, talks about. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. That's the fire. And it is a fire because, as we pointed out before, and we repeat these things over and over in these Q&As, Second Chronicles 34, 35, Great is the rage of the Lord that is poured out upon us. And the Hebrew is the glowing fire of the Lord. That's the rage of wrath of God, symbolized by fire. Okay, let's see. Is there any other question? Any good books, articles, which might apply to the current stuff down in Charlotte? I, uh, there's some interesting things. Uh, the, I don't happen to have my copy of uh, Informed Faith handy at the moment. It's in another room. 
but there was a uh, uh, there's an article called I believe it's the militarization of life <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken that's the one I have in mind and it uh, does speak to what uh, what goes on in terms of uh, a terrorist approach to getting things done that that uh, why people and institutions and groups move to terrorism to get their will done on earth uh, and I think it's uh, restoring insights and that would be a good place to start so Certainly start there and, and work your way out from that. It's called The Militarization of Life. I think it's in the second or third volume. So, but you can find it by its under militarization, I'll bet you. Excuse me. Thanks to the fact that we have great indices in those books. Let's see now. Gordon has joined us and Rachel. Do we have any other pending questions? Again, I have no sense of time when we're doing these. And uh, while we have this hiatus in the questions, I'll say that it does not look like I will be able to be with you folks on the 20th of August, a week from today, because to be broadcasting at this time would be about 5 a.m. or so the morning that I'm flying out of Canberra to Sydney. So it doesn't look like I would be able to pull that off. So regretfully, I think Mark will have lights out on the 20th, and I will be uh, not running Calcedon Live, so I'll be seeing you the 27th, the week after. Brian Edwards asks, and hopefully I can see more of the question, while tech facilitates and encourages communication, the clouds of censorship loom. I'd like to see more. You're wise to self-publish in print, but I love digital. <laughs> well, again, like I said yesterday, I'm starting to love digital too. Uh, Gary North absolutely loves it uh, because we can g search for things. You can find things that otherwise are not accessible. And one of the things that's going to even become more important is as translation capabilities, electronic translation improves, works are inaccessible today because of the language they're in, Latin, French, German, Dutch, um, and not yet translated by a human being into English, will become accessible. I'm minded of one of my favorite volumes up here, the 17th volume of Owen's Complete Works. Now he's saying, well, there were 16 volumes. What's the 17th volume? Well, he did write something that amounted to a 17th volume, and it's now on my shelf in English. It's under the name Biblical Theology by John Owens. It appeared in 1994. Why did it take to 1994 for us to see it? Because when he wrote it, John Owen was writing it in Latin to other theologians. Latin was the language by which theologians back then, even English-speaking ones, sort of talked to each other. No wonder it's a dead language, huh? <laughs> and it's to our lack of uh, credit that we haven't stayed up with it. But Stephen Westcott, Dr. Stephen Westcott, was kind enough to translate it, very excellent translation, into English, and it was published, and I highly recommend it. One of the most fascinating parts of that that we were deprived of was the notion that uh, the written language using phonograms, phonetics, originated with Moses on the mountain, that God delivered those 22 graphs as symbols of sounds to Moses. It would be actually called ancient Thamudic. And that means that the entire chronology of written writing is wrong. We had uh, ideograms before that, uh, symbols, pictograms, but up until then we didn't have a phonetic language. Just as uh, Chinese, or rather say Japanese and Chinese, but yeah, Japanese language, they borrowed the Chinese kanji, the symbols, the pictograms, and the women decided to put together a syllabary of phonetics, uh, the hirakana. And so with a series of symbols, they represented sounds, and you could create any word from those symbols. Being a very patriarchal culture, the men resented using symbols invented by, by women, so they came up with their own set of uh, syllabary, uh, phonetic symbols, called katakana. So Japan, Japanese, is a language that has actually stretched across three structures, kanji, which are the pictograms, the hirakana vowels and, and uh, consonants, sounds, and then the katakana. Uh, interesting development, and so they mix all three together. So the development of uh, phonetic symbols, John Owen traces very compellingly to uh, Moses on the mountain. That means that he redoes the entire chronology of uh, Cadmus, the Lydian, who allegedly uh, gave us the Phoenician alphabet first. That all gets kiboshed <laughs> under Owen's careful analysis. Now, let me tell you this. When I started reading this, I said, oh, this is one of these Puritans going off on a oddball tangent and it's clearly wrong because we know who developed the alphabet and it certainly wasn't first with Moses it was plenty of alphabetical writing before that that wasn't pictogram and the more you read the more 
he looked like this brilliant guy and we looked like idiots. So it's a sad thing that this thing ended up in Latin for so long and very few people who bought the English edition realized what treasures were there. So I think it's a tremendously powerful thing. By the way, we published in Calcine Report several articles by, uh, I think it was Professor Jones, on uh, this, the call from Sinai, the, the actual discovery of the very earliest languages uh, in the true location of Mount Sinai. Some interesting insights there. I think it was a series of three articles worth looking back at if you can uh, track them down. I, I definitely would uh, recommend it. Um, Dr. Miles Jones, I think was his name. Uh, all t and uh, he was not aware of uh, John Owen's work, so we had occasion to uh, uh, trade notes, and then he incorporated John Owen's material into his... But he came to the same conclusions that John Owen had come to, and was very pleased to see that Owen uh, traversed some of the exact same historical records to prove the same point. Priscilla asks, back on the topic of prisons, our family has visited... The rest is missing. Because something is pinned underneath it. Let me see what uh, the pinned comment is. Maybe it can get unpinned. Gordon asks, let's see if we can come back to Priscilla. Do you have any preferences when it comes to what type of sermons are most biblical? Topical? expository, dialectic, etc. I, I do not believe I am a fan of dialectic. My preference for um, expository is that we don't miss any of the whole counsel of God. Oh, thank you, that whipped into place. Uh, <clears throat> but what happens if you're going to spend three years on Romans? How balanced is that going to be? So it seems to me that you want to... The topical jumps around but then you don't get the flow of an entire book, which is the way the, the letters actually showed up and were perceived and digested by the recipients. So I think there's a benefit to going through a book, and there's benefits for topical, but the dialectic approach, I think, is, a, is inherently problematic in many respects. Uh, I've done both, by the way. I've gone, gone through books, and I've gone topical. Uh, and in topical, you can see everything. And I have to bring everything to bear. That's the point. If you do topical, you have a benefit at least of trying to get all the scripture in ultimately. Think about this. In the church fathers, when they went topically through stuff, they basically got every single scripture in the New uh, Testament except for four verses. It could be reproduced from the church fathers. It's all there except for four verses. So that's just stunning to me. It just shows that they had a very broad approach. And if we have that, I don't think we're going to be hurting so much. So, and the name of that work by Owen is Biblical Theology, published 1994. Thanks. Now, see, Priscilla's question was, back on the topic of prisons, our family has visited several men and women in prisons for several years now and have witnessed that the majority of Christians who visit prisoners are evangelical antinomians and, I don't see the rest of it, unfortunately. I wish it would say something like, read entire message. But I would agree with you. The, um, they, they, they get a uh, four spiritual laws kind of approach if there's raw evangelism going on. The chaplains are getting compromised. Sometimes the chaplains are told to dial back the scripture, particularly if they're coming with the whole counsel of God, let alone easy believism and greasy grace, which tend to dominate these situations. So I, th I think the people in prison want, and would, or actually need, and would be hungry for, is the Word of God, the whole Word of God. The Word of God actually changes them. Okay. Thank you, uh, Kelsey, for giving me the rest of Priscilla's question. We're antinomians, evangelical antinomians, or charismatics who only teach forgiveness and grace, throwing the law of God out the door. This has led to a very wicked lifestyle within prison walls with no real desire to live obediently to God's word and thus possess, poses, and then the rest is missing. <laughs> Please, um, so that, there's a, I can gather what's going on. There are deficiencies when a partial gospel is preached versus the whole counsel of God. And that's why I said, in prison, these men, if anybody, d uh, need to get the entire word of God. And if they can get it from someone inside the prison, that's even better. You know, there's a light there uh, to, to share. Well, that was Peter and that was Paul while they were in prison. They were a light to round about to the folks. But there was nothing halfway about their gospel and there was no easy believe as a minute. And so you're right. If you're telling folks God loves you, uh, 
without the proper qualifications, then we are essentially steeping people in their own sin and confirming them in it. And that's the last thing people in prison need, especially if they're there for a legitimate reason versus a trumped-up charge. Josh Robinson asks, Martin, what are some books you'd recommend to the topics of family, self-government, and dominion? That's uh, What we really should have is a book on self-government that actually speaks to it from top to bottom. And there's some books of Dr. Rushdoney's that seem to do this if one uh, reads attentively. I think Salvation and Godly Rule is big in this regard. Uh, a careful read of that will, will, will bring it out. But it's certainly a big, thick monster. It's not you know, a pamphlet. It uh, doesn't lend itself to a quick read at all because it's deep. Everything that we do at Chalcedon is geared to Christian self-government. That, that's, that's the main point. If the Christian man can't govern himself, then you're going to have to have the external government and then the state's going to fill in that vacuum because the law, because the law of God is not ruling you through the Holy Spirit's work in your heart to, to uh, quicken it. And at that point, then you are blown about by every wind of doctrine and you are going to be have to be controlled not internally by the Spirit of God through the mediating the law of God. Uh, it's going to be the state will do it. Remember, the law of God mediates between man and man and between God and man. And so our relationship with our fellow men is to be mediated by the second table of the law. Uh, so we don't have a uh, <coughs> free, <coughs> unlimited access to our fellow man. In fact, we don't even have free access to our wives because even that is regulated by Scripture because everything is uh, controlled by the law of God because that alone is the path to blessing. God as the Creator sets uh, in, in place the law that reflects His character and since we're made in His image, we're not fully we're fulfilled only at such time as we walk and uh, govern ourselves according to His Word. How difficult this can be is laid out by scriptures that say, you know, you know mightier is he that controls his own spirit than he that takes the city. No one said it's easy uh, to rule your own spirit, but that's the calling, isn't it? Because if you won't uh, be ruled by God, then you'll be ruled by men. And men are tyrants when they have to rule you. Right, and the final, we finally get the final piece of Priscilla's question. That poses a difficult transition when freedom meets a prisoner. That is, once they're released from prison, uh, what were they prepared for? Were they given the, um, the liberal arts, as Rashuni says, the uh, arts, the skills that make for liberty? which is under responsibility under God's law, or were they provided a um, antinomian uh, justification that God fundamentally is opposed to law and there is no law with God and God accepts us without reference to law at all, as opposed to uh, having crucified Christ for our sake because of the law. That's how important the law was. It couldn't be set aside, as Rishtuni said. I know everyone else can see what Priscilla wrote, so, but I don't think it's going to be a good idea to try to catch or capture four chunks sporadically here. <laughs> law and Rock of Liberty. Uh, I think you might mean uh, Law of Liberty is a good book, uh, called so-called Institutes Light. That's also a good, good I think it's valuable because it starts to tell us the importance of Christian self-government. I always point to the 39th page of Law and Liberty because it talks about the problem when the when your ultimate authorities are here on earth then man's in trouble that's when the state claims to be its ultimate authority and is on the same level as us then the state's power grab crowds out our freedom whereas if we're all self-governed from the top down then our freedom here laterally amongst ourselves is maximized and that's the beauty of christian self-government is that it's the pathway to absolute maximization of uh, liberty and freedom I walk at liberty because I seek thy precepts, is what Psalm 119 records, and that's the promise. Scripture. Charles Roberts writes, If anyone is interested, there's a copy of Roots of Reconstruction on eBay for $29. <laughs> it's a little bit over um, our price, sale price, which was 20 uh, But look at the price that we have to get the entire informed faith uh, in three volumes. However... Uh, if you just want to see what the original looked like and have it on hand, uh, it's a massive read. By the way, I believe Reconstruction Radio has in the is in the middle of doing the entire Roots of Reconstruction 
as uh, audio uh, messages. I think uh, Shelby Luke is responsible for narrating that monster. More power to him. God give him grace it's in, and strength of throat <laughs> to pull that off. But you can imagine what you're going through if you're reading the whole thing out loud, what you're getting out of that. Yeah. It's an amazing tour de force. But if that was, and it was incomplete and unindexed, what does that make an informed faith, the three-volume one? When we were doing events, we were able to sell that book, Roots, at uh, wholesale $10 for 1,194 pages, the most bang for the buck. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed being able to get that onto people's libraries. Now, my fear was it served as a better um, book stop, right, bookend than a book because it was so big and heavy, or a doorstop for that matter. But if you read it, you got a lot out of it. If, so for those who want to go to eBay, $29 isn't bad for an out-of-print copy. I might have three copies here. I probably should not have said that. Because <laughs> people say, well, why don't you sell me one for $10? Uh, and probably the first two who ask, I might say, sure. But that's be this as me. Uh, are we doing on time, Andrea? Are we uh, getting finished for the session? Uh, I didn't think it was that funny. But thanks for the, the smiley face. Okay, it's doubly funny. See, people don't tune in to see me because I have a pretty face. That's for certain. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. North's uh, presentation at the Future Christendom Conference, uh, he did it um, over the wire. And it was funny because as he looked uh, uh, over his glasses into the camera, and he says, obviously, uh, this video is not going to be uh, make the rounds because uh, of what I look like. It's going to have to be the content. So same thing with these things. It's going to be the content. So, right. Thank you. Uh, this is, um, was there one last one? So, BC Sue Roberts had asked a question. Well, I will see if I can capture it and email you an answer. Here we go. Good evening, Mr. Martin. Please help clarify this passage, Hebrews 7 and 8, verse 18 and 19. It speaks of the Law of Moses, and a well-known pastor had preached and said the Law of Moses was imperfect. Well, the problem is it said it was, first of all, the Law of Moses is imperfect, but all law is imperfect because it's a transcript of what you ought to do. It's, it's wise counsel, and you cannot tell a corpse what to do. What the corpse needs is not to be given good advice, but needs uh, resurrection power, and that the gospel does. The gospel brings alive that which is dead. So you cannot give the law of God to the dead men. You know, the spiritually dead cannot receive the things of the Spirit. And the law of God is a spiritual gift. It's given to us through the Spirit. Uh, it's written on, uh, delivered by angels, written on stone, and supposed to be um, read and understood and be the foundation of our lives. So the problem with the law of God is that God found fault with them, the people. Uh, and Andrea's saying, we're still going. I thought we were going to close up. Uh, finding fault with them, place was sought for a new covenant, which wasn't premised on the weakness of the people. Uh, and, and the whole point of that old covenant was it was pointing forward to the new covenant the entire time. It already had made provisions for its own termination. Uh, we can talk about that when we come back on the 27th, so I don't extend this too far. An old question, any rush to any stuff in Chinese or Korean? I will answer that question privately, Zachary, and I'll give you the word on that. And then uh, we can uh, finish up this week and look forward to seeing everyone. Uh, sorry we won't be here next week. Pray for a good success at the Daniel 244 conference in Canberra, Australia, where I'll be speaking, I think, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll be flying out Tuesday night from Austin to LA to Sydney to Canberra. And next thing you know, across the line and it's Wednesday. Thanks guys. Appreciate all your prayers and your support and I'll get with the two questions uh, that I promised to have a private answer to on Facebook Messenger. Thanks. God bless. Safe travels. Thanks. Appreciate it. I, I really do appreciate having the prayer support for everyone out there. Because here I'm just in a room with an iPhone. <laughs> but uh, heart to heart, I can, I can appreciate that. God bless all. Talk to you next week. Or week after I should say. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbredi. 
We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.